Good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. Um, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Uh, one, one of my first jobs as a kid, uh, I think I was maybe in eighth grade, uh, and I had a paper route when I was in fifth grade, but nobody really considers that a real job. So one of the first real jobs I had when I was a kid was cleaning a locally owned pharmacy after school. Uh, it was a great job because this pharmacy happened to be right downtown in the small town where, where I went to school, and it had a soda fountain, uh, like you know a lot of old-time pharmacies and drugstores uh, did back in, in the day. And kids used to come in after school and hang out at the soda fountain, you know, get a milkshake or an ice cream or a you know, root beer float or something. So, so it was kind of a cool place to work. And one of my duties was to, uh, to, to vacuum the, the, the pharmacy. I would vacuum while the store was open and while there were people in the store, of course, being careful not to disturb them or, you know, or run them over with the vacuum. Uh, sometimes a, a lot of kids from my school were in there when I was vacuuming. Now, one of the things that I was not fully aware of at the time is how when you are standing very close to a mechanism generating a lot of noise, such as a vacuum cleaner, you think that mechanism is drowning out whatever you might be saying, when in fact it may not be. And in fact, you're standing so close to that mechanism making noise that you tend to talk louder because you think it's difficult for people to hear you. Uh, an extreme example of this is like when your wife or husband is wearing headphones and they have the volume cranked up, the, the headphones covering their ears and so, or maybe even the in-ear kind. So, so they think you can't hear them faintly humming along. In fact, they don't even realize oftentimes that they're faintly humming along to whatever it is they're listening to. Then, then they suddenly want to tell you something and what happens. Yeah, they talk way louder than necessary or appropriate. They, they don't realize they're talking way too loud. You can hear them just fine. In fact, you could hear them even if they whispered because you're not wearing that noise-making mechanism on your head like there. So, so they don't need to try to talk over it, Right? Well, that's the same principle when you're running a vacuum, though perhaps not quite as extreme. Because, because of your proximity to the vacuum, the vacuum is much louder to you than for someone standing maybe eight or 10 feet away. So you don't think they can hear you even though they can hear you perfectly well, which unfortunately became the cause of some embarrassment for me because I liked to pray while I was vacuuming the store. I liked to pray out loud. It turns out louder than was necessary or appropriate because I didn't think that they could hear me, you know, because the vacuum was so loud and I was passionate in my prayers. And sometimes I would pray for my friends who were walking by, totally not thinking that they can hear me, praying, you know, God would help them overcome their hang-ups and the issues that they were dealing with that issue, and, you know, and I would go into detail in my prayers, which would then cause me to segue into confessing my own sins out loud, louder than was necessary or appropriate. Again, believing that nobody could actually hear me because of the vacuum. And so I'm like, you know, oh, God, forgive me for you know, 
forgive me for lusting after Christy, who just walked by on the way to the soda fountain and, you know, well, whatever else you might imagine would be totally accurate. I mean, this audio phenomenon is something that we all occasionally deal with in everyday life. In fact, I use an electric toothbrush. I even brought it this morning. This toothbrush makes very little noise to bystanders. Um, I'm going to turn it on here and just demonstrate. You know, so it makes very little noise to bystanders. See? But, <clears throat> and you know, and if I just turn it on and just hold it like this, I, you know, I can have a conversation with somebody just fine and we can hear each other. But when I put it in my mouth, that's all you can hear is the toothbrush, right? Because of the proximity of the toothbrush to my eardrums, I can't hear anything except the toothbrush. It's, it's vibrating my jawbone and, and my skull is transferring those vibrations directly into my eardrum. So I'll be brushing my teeth, you know, and, and while all head Jenny hears is this little soft whir, you know, what I hear is, and, and she'll be trying to talk to me, and, and, you know, I won't even know that she's trying to talk to me. I look over, glance over, and her mouth is moving, but all I'm hearing is, you know, this. It's, it's, uh, and then, you know, she, I finally turn it off, and she says, so, well, what do you think? Like, you weren't listening again, were you? And I said, I can't hear you. I have this toothbrush in my mouth. Well, we're two weeks into a series called Hearing God. Last week, our good friend Chuck Gurwood kicked off the series underscoring the awesome truth that God eagerly desires to speak to us. And in fact, he is speaking to us all the time, though we often aren't able to hear him. And Chuck took us through a passage in John chapter 10 where Jesus talks about how he is the good shepherd and how his sheep know his voice. And because they know his voice, they follow him. Jesus clearly states in this passage that the defining characteristic of his followers is that they know and recognize his voice and they subsequently follow him. In fact, let's just look at this verse, just a couple of verses actually from the passage that Chuck read last week. Uh, Jesus says, the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? God knows your name. He knows your name. He calls you by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. You see, his sheep know his voice, and, he, and they follow him. But the same principles that affect our ability to hear in the audible sense also affect our ability to hear in the spiritual sense. This world is a very noisy place, isn't it? And, and your proximity to those noises dramatically affect your ability to hear other things, perhaps better things, more life-giving things. The noisiness of this world often drowns out God's voice, doesn't it? 
Other voices continually compete with God's voice so that we don't always hear him as clearly and as consistently as we should or, or even as we'd like to. Our ability to hear God's voice depends upon our proximity to him in relationship to the other noises and voices of this word. So here's the obvious point. You must be willing to step away from, to distance yourself from, the other voices, other noises, if you want to hear God's voice. And in fact, the best way to hear God's voice is to get it inside of you, right? Just like when you put the electric toothbrush in your mouth and all you can hear is the vibration of the toothbrush, when you get God inside of you or when you get his Holy Spirit inside of you, you hear his voice much more clearly. Now, that being said, this morning I'm going to make a radical argument. I'm going to suggest that even if you have God living inside of you and his Holy Spirit indwelling you, even if you are fully and completely, you know, abiding in the vine, you know, like what Jesus talks about in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Even if you are fully connected to and abiding in the vine and his sap is flowing through you, through you unobstructed, even if you were to have the entire Bible committed to memory and spend all your waking time meditating and, and in prayer, even if all those things were true of you, something would still be missing. Even if you lived a completely moral, godly life of righteousness and integrity, I contend that you will still, you still would not be able to hear everything God wants you to hear and know everything God wants you to know and experience all that God wants you to experience. And some of you know why. You know where I'm going with this. And for those of you who don't know where I'm going with this, let me just, let me just tell you. One of my favorite TV shows is a, a show called Alone. It's a reality TV show where they drop off 10 people to 10 separate remote locations equipped with nothing but, uh, but a, a, a uh, small backpack and, and a bunch of video gear. They're dropped off miles from one another in an isolated remote location, each one all by themselves. The nearest human being is miles away. They have a very short list of items that they can carry in their backpack, uh, but nothing like matches or firearms, you know, no, no tents. Uh, one small pot to cook with, <clears throat> no utensils, no batteries, no com communication devices. They have to build their own shelter, forage for food, and survive completely on their own for as long as they can. And they have to film themselves doing it. There is no camera crew which is why they're each dropped off with a bunch of video gear. They're also provided with a satellite phone that they can use when they're, when they're ready to give up, to tag out, you know, or when they get sick or injure themselves. Once they use that satellite phone, uh, they're done. They're, they're tapping out. It's, this show's over for them. The one who lasts the longest wins half a million dollars, $500,000. So far, there have been 10 seasons, and so far, the longest anyone has lasted is a guy named uh, Ronald Walker from season seven who lasted 100 days. 
Sorry, spoiler alert if you haven't got this, that season seven yet. But, but, but here's the thing. The reason most people give up, tap out, quit, is not because they get injured or sick, which does happen to some people. Or, or it's not because they're starving to death, which, you know, every single one of them lose an insane amount, an insane amount of weight uh, while they're doing this. But the reason most people quit by their own admission is because they can no longer tolerate the isolation. They can no longer tolerate being alone. Because we human beings were not made to be alone. Human beings were not made to do life by themselves. We need each other. We were created that way. We are incomplete without one another. We, we often foolishly think we would be much happier if we were alone, you know, if we, if we didn't have to put up with other people and their problems and their hang-ups and their annoying habits and their personalities. But we are sorely mistaken when we think that way. I, I want us to read together Romans 12, verse 5. In fact, let's read it out loud together. Uh, are you ready? Here we go. Let's read it out loud together. Ready? Go. Since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, and each of us needs all the others. Now, you may not be fully convinced that that is true, but I want to unpack that idea a little bit this morning, especially in the context of how we hear God. Most of us, or most of the things that, the, that, that we are encouraged to do in the Bible as followers of Jesus, you cannot do alone. I think we talk about this a lot on Sunday mornings here. Most of the things we're encouraged to do in the Bible, we cannot do by ourselves because they are relational in nature. Encourage one another, build up one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, instruct one another, serve one another, strengthen one another, bear one another's burdens, consider others more important than yourself. I could go on and on and on. All of these things are impossible for you to do outside of, a re outside of relationship, outside of community. They require one another. We looked at John 10 last week where Jesus refers to us, his followers, as sheep. Not exactly a compliment when you think about it. Especially in our day. To be a sheep in our day implies that you are a blind follower just kind of following the crowd. But that's what Jesus calls us. He calls us sheep. Of course, he doesn't mean for us to follow blindly but to follow him with our eyes wide open. Now, now, I may wish that he had used some other form animal besides, you know, sheep to describe us. Like, you know, what's the matter with a horse? You know, you, my horses follow me. I mean, or a Mustang, you know, Mustang. Now you're talking, you know, uh, or a bull, or, or not a farm animal farm animal at all. You know, why couldn't have Jesus referred to us as eagles or bears or something much more noble and strong, you know, but he preferred to call us, his followers, to call us sheep. The reality is that's what we are. All of us. We human beings are very much like sheep in that we are followers by nature. Whether you 
like that idea or not, it's true. We are all following someone or something, all of us. Even those who claim they are not following anybody or anything, they're their own person. Even those who claim they are unique, they are one of a kind, they don't follow nobody, and they have the tattoos and piercings to prove it. Tattoos and piercings, just like so many others with tattoos and piercings who are try desperately trying to prove they are unique and independent than their own person. Listen, we're all followers. It's in our nature, and, and, and there's virtually no way around it. Everybody is following something or someone. The big question you have to ask yourself is, who are you following? Or what are you following? A culture, an ideology, a philosophy, a religion? We all choose our shepherd. And I don't need to tell you there are some really, really bad shepherds out there. Shepherds, Jesus said, who are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And ironically, even the wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing are following someone. Though to their ultimate demise and destruction, they, most of the time they don't realize who it is they're actually following. Jesus said, my sheep, they know my voice and they follow me. And as sheep, one of the other characteristics about sheep is that they flock together. That, too, is in our nature, to flock together. We are communal creatures. It's how God made us. It's not safe or wise or, or natural for a sheep to go off on its own. The sheep that do wander off on their own, you know, either by carelessness or, or inattention or maybe just by sheer stupidity, those sheep that do wander off, as every shepherd knows, and even people that aren't shepherds, they know they, they are far more vulnerable to disease and predation and simply falling into a hole that they can't get out of. We are creatures who are dependent upon our shepherd and our community, our flock, for our welfare. Jesus called us his flock. Now, the Apostle Paul uses a similar but more descriptive metaphor than the verse that I quoted just a few minutes ago. The Apostle Paul calls us, as a community, the body of Christ. Let's look at that verse in context. This is what Paul says. We're going to start a few verses before the one I quoted earlier. He says this. He says, As God's messenger, I give each of you God's warning. A warning here. Be honest in your estimation of yourselves. Measure your value by how much faith God has given you. Uh, another translation puts it this way, that verse. He says, uh, he says, because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think more highly of yourself than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith God has given you. Do not think more highly of yourself than you should. And why is he talking about this? Why, why does he mention that? Well, he goes on to say this. He says, just as there are many parts to our bodies, so it is with Christ's body. We're all parts of it, and it takes every one of us to make it complete. For we each have different work to do. And then this is the verse that we quoted earlier. Since we are all one body in Christ, we belong to each other, 
and each of us needs all the others. God has given each of us the ability to do certain things well. Just like a physical body, each part plays an important role, an essential role, and is dependent upon the other parts of the body. In his letter to the Corinthians, he takes this, Paul, the Apostle Paul takes this metaphor much further. He says this, The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the foot, I don't need you. And some of the parts that seem weakest and least important are really the most necessary. Some of the parts that seem insignificant are actually the more indispensable ones, Paul says. His point is that each one of us is a unique and special expression of the love and goodness of God. Every one of us. None of us are capable of fully expressing the multifaceted nature of God's love and goodness by ourselves, on our own, outside of relationship with one another. His love and goodness only finds full expression in the context of the rest of the body. We need each other just like different parts of a physical body need the other parts and are dependent on the other parts, which means which means I cannot see everything God wants me to see or hear everything God wants me to hear or experience all that God wants me to experience independently, on my own, isolated from everyone else. I cannot hear everything God wants to, wants to speak to me without the rest of the body. One of the channels God uses to speak to us is other believers in Jesus. When I try to live the Christian life detached from the rest of the body, well, well, two things happen. Number one, I shrivel up and die, right? You know, a hand detached from the rest of the body is um, gross, number one, but it's also dead. It, it cannot survive detached from the rest of the body. It, just, it quickly just becomes dead tissue. The other thing that happens is that the rest of the body, being without the hand, is now, what? It's, it's handicapped. It, it cannot fully function as it was created to function. So this is a pretty big deal. The Apostle Paul and Jesus himself go to pretty dramatic lengths to underscore not only just how much we need him, but also how much we need, we need each other. This is something that we should take pretty seriously and figure out how to do well. So how do we do that? Well, I don't know. I, I guess if, it, if it's supposed to happen, it'll just happen. Let's, let's close in prayer. No, of course not. No, no. The writers of Scripture have given us pretty clear and specific instructions. L let me tell you how seriously Jesus takes this issue of community. Those of you who know the New Testament, how often did Jesus approach somebody and say, I want you to follow me. I'm putting together a little band of disciples and I want, to, I want you to be one of them, but, but I know you're really busy and you really just don't have time to be a part of a community group. You know, plus, <laughs> some of the other disciples can be kind of a pain. I mean, Peter talks too much and Thomas is pretty negative and Judas, well, <laughs> don't even get me started on Judas. Uh, yeah, so, so you can skip the community part. J just make sure you read the text and, and make sure you attend the lectures, uh, but you can do discipleship on the self-study plan. How often did Jesus make that offer available to somebody? Never. 
Never. Jesus called us to radical community. In fact, he called us to be one. To be one. And though we are many, he called us to be one. In fact, Jesus said the credibility of his whole ministry and message rests on our oneness. There is no self-study discipleship plan. I know some of you are discouraged. Some of you have been facing significant challenges and struggles. You've been struggling with, with, with motivation. You've been struggling with negative attitudes. Some of you feel like you've been going around and around the same mountain over and over again with little progress in a certain area of your life. And I want to just suggest very gently and lovingly that it's quite possible that the reason you keep going, you keep experiencing this is that you have yet to truly embrace the concept of community the way Jesus intends for you to embrace it. You need other Christians and you need strong connections regularly meeting together with other Jesus followers, other believers. God's plan is for you to be built up that's his intention. God's plan is, is, is for your life to be brimming with hope and a future. It, it, God's plan is progress and growth and promise. God's plan is for you to be a, a victor, a winner. But you will never experience that on the self-study plan. The scriptures couldn't be more clear. See, I cannot see or hear or experience all God wants me to see, hear, and experience outside of community with the rest of the flock of, of committed Jesus followers. It just, I, it just can't happen. 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, uh, verse 11 says this. Encourage each other and build each other up. Encourage each other and build each other up. God's plan for building up your life is to do it largely through other people. Yes, God has determined to speak to you through other people, to encourage you, to impart to you wisdom, to heal you, to, to complete you, to build you up. But you cannot, be, you cannot build up yourself, or you can, but only to a limited degree. You need the rest of the body to build you up. It takes community. So how are we as Christians to do community? Well, first of all, most obviously, God has given us families. The most fundamental level, he's given us families. Some families are big, some are small, some families are healthy, some not so much. Some families are downright dysfunctional. Obviously, God intended for families to be places of love and health where every member flourishes and has their needs met, you know, their physical needs, emotional, material needs, relational, spiritual. That's God's intention for the family. If your family is not such a family, God has specifically placed you in that family to help bring that, to, to help that become that kind of family. This is part of your assignment as a follower of Jesus, to bring life and health and vitality to your family. And God will help you. It won't happen overnight. In fact, quite honestly, it may take generations. But you could be the spark 
that could change the whole direct trajectory of your family, and perhaps that's one of God's assignments for you. So God's given us families. Another way we Christians are instructed to do community is by regularly gathering, gathering together with other like-minded followers of Jesus. In the New Testament, when the church was very young, and at certain other times and places in histories, Christians met together every single day. Every day, yeah, they went to church every day and loved it. Maybe one day that will be the norm again. Here's what most churches do in our time and place, 21st century United States of America. We have a weekly service where we all come together on Sunday mornings like we are here, and we pull out the stops in celebration and worship and singing and studying scripture and prayer and fellowship and, and food. <laughs> but that's just one once a week. And all that takes place in this kind of, of uh, you know, arrangement, this kind of format. Everybody's sitting in rows, Gabe mentioned earlier, sitting in rows, facing forward toward a platform or stage while one or two people bring a message from Scripture or lead in congregational singing. And so there's not the level of participation and connection and communion that, that, that we also need. We need this, but we also need more than this. We need something in addition to this. Here, and here's what we say at Hope, and Gabe mentioned it. Rows are awesome. We need to have rows, but circles are awesomer. At Hope, we don't have very good uh, English. <laughs> They're more awesome. A circle is where you sit facing one another and everyone is encouraged to share, to participate, not just to listen, but to contribute. Our weekend meetings are just not able to supply everything God intended for church to be. We need community and connection in a deeper way. So we have community groups, and, uh, and, and they meet in smaller gatherings, people in homes or other small venues every week. Some meet, you know, maybe once every other week, but smaller, more intimate gatherings where you can more effectively do the one another's that we listed earlier. Encourage one another, instruct one another, pray for one another, build one another up, serve one another, laugh with one another, bear one another's burdens, bear with one another, all those things. Here's the point I want to make. You need a community group, every one of us. You may not think you do, but I'm just going to tell you, you do. You do. You cannot see everything God wants you to see. You cannot hear everything God wants you to hear. You cannot experience everything God wants you to experience or have everything that God wants you to have if you are not connected to and committed to meeting regularly with a group of people who, who you develop close, Christ-centered relationships. You say, but, but I don't have time. Well, as I said at the beginning of the message, there are lots of voices Lots of noises, lots of sound that compete with God's voice that unless you change your proximity, you simply won't hear God's voice. It, it will be drowned out. God's voice will be drowned out. God can still hear you very clearly, but because you have all these other voices and sounds be, you know, surrounding you, you can't hear him. You may need to make the difficult choice of moving away from some of these other voices so you can position yourself better to hear God. But, 
But Pastor Jim, I have plenty of social connections. I have lots of community. Listen, there's a huge difference between social connections and a community centered on Christ, a community mutually committed to hearing his voice and following him and building one another up in the faith. Ah, but Pastor Jim, people drain me and they can be annoying and people can be hard to, to get along with. Bingo, bingo. You, you just hit on one of God's primary objectives when it comes to your relationship. This is a required course in your Christian journey. You must learn to love people who may not be so easy to love. You cannot skip this course. It's required. Jesus said even heathens, even pagans love people who are easy to love. Come on. I'm calling you to love people, to learn to love people who may not be so easy to love. And guess what? You probably aren't always easy to love either. And in that process of learning to love one another, we create the kingdom of God. Well, we don't create the kingdom of God, but we enter into the kingdom of God. Dr. Caroline Leaf says in her book, Switch on Your Brain Every Day, she writes this, don't let the um, don't let the often puzzling and confusing tendencies of other people frustrate you. They are a mystery, but don't see them as a helplessly complicated, unsolvable puzzle. Instead, treat the mystery as an invitation to an exciting adventure, a journey of discovery that will lead you to a place and uh, lead you to a new place and change you along the way. And this is, this is called a mindset. We must change our mindset and, and learn to reframe, to think differently about other people, to see them differently. She continues, we serve a magnificent creator who loves us so much that he makes each of us unique. Learning how to embrace our differences can be life-changing, and it increases brain function and intelligence to boot. This is a neuroscientist. She knows what she's talking about. She says, learning to love people that are sometimes difficult to love makes you smarter and increases your brain function. Living in community, especially Christian relationships, actually makes you more intelligent, more emotional health. the challenges that come along with it. The Apostle Peter writes this. Worship team, why don't you come back up? The Apostle Peter writes this. The end of the world is coming. And a lot of people think that that's literally true. Like, I mean, and it's, you, you look at the world and you go, gosh, how long can this go on? We may be in the end days. They thought they were in at the time that Peter wrote this. He says, the end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, because the end of the world is coming through uh, soon, what are your instructions to us? Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers, but most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Since we're in the end times, love each other all the more. Learn to love one another. We're bringing heaven down to earth when we learn to love one another. He says, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay or a community group to host. 
God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Let me let you in on a little secret. The more you see God in others, the more you will hear God through others. Let me say it again. The more you can see God in others, the more you will hear God through others. So look for God in others. Dear Heavenly Father, you have given us such a tremendous invitation here. It's not an easy one. It, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging one. And sometimes it's a difficult road, but you have called us to this road to live in community with one another, to learn how to love one another deeply, to bear with one another. Sometimes we have to forgive one another. In your word, it also says we have to overlook each other's faults and foibles and weaknesses. But in doing all these things, we are actually participating in the kingdom of God, and you are making us ready for heaven. You're making us ready to spend eternity with you and with one another in, in glorious joy and unity. So may we all say, Heavenly Father, may we say yes to this invitation and, and um, establish those kinds of relationships in a deeper, more meaningful way. In Jesus' name, amen.